Hi, and welcome to another special episode of Casting Views. This week, I'm highlighting my appearance on really good friend of mine in the shows, Antonio over at The Cult Worthy. He had me on in June of 2023 to discuss the first episode in a sub-series he thought of called Brick Grit. So we'll be looking at a British gangster film each from each decade, starting with the 70s. So this episode, I chose performance and he chose sitting target. So sit back and listen as we talk about those two films. As I said before, please do, if you're not, please do check out Antonio at the Cult Worthy. Give him a follow and a subscribe. Really good guy, really good friend, really good podcast. I'll see you next week for a brand new episode of Casting Views. I would like, if I may, to take you on a strange journey. It has been a number of years since I began excavating the ruins of Kandar, the group of my colleagues. Well, a, a boy's best friend is his mother. Eric Bedford lives for the movies. Sometimes he kills Woody too. And probably the most important thing, don't ever feed him after midnight. Hello and welcome to the Cult Worthy Cinema Podcast. I'm your host, Antonio, here with one of my favorite podcasting people. Just one of my favorite people. We even had the opportunity of meeting in person, even though he lives all the way across the pond in England. My really good friend, Dan from Casting Views. Dan, welcome to the show. Hi there. People can't see, but I've just had the biggest grin on my face with that intro. It's, <laughs> thank you for that. And it's great to be be back on the show. Well, I think it's really neat because, you know, we're hitting all sorts of milestones with, let's say, the time our podcasts have been around, our amount of episodes, the amount of downloads. You were one of my very first connections. And as we've taken this podcasting journey together, it's really fun to celebrate milestones together and we, we were kind of talking about it the other day when I signed up for Good Pods. You were the very first podcast that I followed and that I listened to that was in this little group that we had joined, this little networking group, because I thought Casting Views was a podcast about casting actors <laughs> in movies like Dreamcasts or Would You Have Rather Cast. And then it turned out to be a topical podcast, which... Honestly, I was not a huge fan of at the time, but yours was so engrossing and I loved the topics and I just liked your voice. And then we just kind of became friends online and now we're like friends for real. It's so exciting. Yeah, it's it's amazing how how things work out. And like you said, yeah, getting get being the first one of our group to meet um to, to actually meet in person and as you said yeah we probably live the furthest away we really do yeah. <laughs> either direction yeah. if you go east around the planet or west around the planet i kind of live the furthest away from you <laughs> we've also had you on the show several times we've had great conversations about censorship in england when it came to movies and music and video games and then I had you want to talk about a very British film. We talked about The Wicker Man back in December during my cult Christmas yeah. uh, series. And we've got you back on to talk about something similar. I mean, I've got a guy who lives in England right now. So why wouldn't we speak about something that's more relevant to your particular part of the world? What are we talking about today, buddy? 
We are talking about British crime slash gangster films, aren't we? Grit, grit, I think you've called it. Yeah, yeah grit, grit. You actually titled that, and I'm going with it. I did not. Uh, yes, yeah. I did. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. And we're going to be doing a fun, we're going to be able to make this last. We're going to uh, really test the longevity of it because we're going to go decade by decade, starting with the 1970s. And the reason why we're going to do 1970s first and, you know, the other decades throughout the next year or so is that there really weren't a whole lot of British gangster films in the 60s. It was kind mm-hmm. of like them being spawned. And we can talk about the relevance of that really fast. As I was going through and researching films of the 60s that were like British gangster films, not a lot came up. And there's reasons for that. A, there was like really strict censorship laws, very similar to what we had over here in like the 30s through the the 50s in the States, where there had to be some kind of, let's say, moral compensation message at the end of films. They didn't want to glamorize violence. They didn't want to glamorize the CD criminal underworld. And if they did bring that into a film, they were almost obligated to show that crime doesn't pay. And there had to be a moral compensation lesson at the end of the film or midway through. So until filmmakers really got comfortable with making those type of movies, one censorship kind of took a little step back. The same thing applied to horror and slasher films. You know, that's why I think the hammer films of the fifties and sixties were so dry and then they took a very dark turn into more gothic themes with blood and gore and adult situations. The same thing could be said for crime films, don't you think? Yeah, absolutely. And as you said, we've touched upon censorship before, especially in the UK. And it was quite restrictive and, and quite heavily applied here. Um, as you say, coming into the 70s, it started loosening, I think, because you had like the new wave of films in Europe, that kind of freedom Mm -hmm. coming in from Europe into the UK, that's helped it. I think that started, you started seeing more and more acceptable levels of, of basically skin and, and violence. Um, But we, I think I did touch upon it briefly in one of my previous guests, the guest slots here, but what that did lead to here as an aside, a funny thing is that you would then it didn't just go right. We're censored. We're not censored. It became around the country. Different areas could apply their own laws. So right. you could live in town A, and a film would be heavily censored. But five minutes over into the next town, they'd have an uncensored version of that film. So you know, censorship laws just—they don't make sense a lot of the time. But that you know, within our own country, where we're not so unlike in the states, where each state has its own laws and taxes, etc. We're not like that here. So I'm trying to put my mind into that time and think what it could have been like as a as a movie fan trying to see these these new films that were, were coming out. And there's also something to be said about the cultural significance of, let's say, gangsters and criminals in the UK as opposed to the ones in the States. You know, we've always kind of like had this weird hero worship in the States for people who fought against the law. It goes back to like the the westerns, it goes back to the early mob films of like the 20s and 30s, let's say Cagney playing a gangster and 
uh, Scarface, Paul Mooney, Shame of the Nation, all these different things. There is a weird kind of hero worship to the criminal underworld in the States. Now, granted, there was a lot of that moral compensation in film, but when you would read pulp novels or the old comic books of those days, they were really glamorizing these these gangsters, these murderers, these killers. Yeah. And also the media loved it too. You know, it's sell papers. So people started looking at gangsters and criminals in the 30s, 40s, and 50s in the States with this weird kind of hero worship. And I think it was very cleverly turned in the 1950s when the FBI was formed, because now you had like this task force that was out after these gangsters, after these criminal underworlds. And you were able to start shifting your hero worship to these government agencies, these law agencies. You'd have things like the untouchables on TV. You would have Jack Webb and Dragnet. So, the, the hero worship went from like uh, really loving these gangsters and these criminals to starting to love and respect these government law agencies, which in a lot of ways were just as crooked as the gangsters, but they had a shinier coat of paint on them for the American public. But there really wasn't anything like that for the UK, you know? Like you guys really didn't have a whole lot of agencies. And you had Scotland Yard, you had, you know, the the detectives, you had just the regular beat police, but I think one of the biggest things, and they talk about it in one of the movies that we're going to cover today, is just your overall lack of firearms in the country. You don't have a lot of exciting gangsters when you have a lack of firearms. <laughs> yeah, I mean, just going back to what you said, though, as well, is I, I was seeing here as well, looking possibly 60s, 70s, maybe 80s was the last decade for it, where there was also a romanticism of the gangster because i think it was here it was looked at a lot of those gangsters were seen as working class almost like working class heroes there's always been a class system every you know around the world but especially here but i think even in a couple of the films you know we're going to talk about you you saw that there was a real working class against upper class and i think it was seen that the the gangsters were almost fighting were were fighting against the upper class and were, were becoming more working class heroes i think well, and you see that even in the gangster films of today, you know, Guy Ritchie, who is probably the most prominent uh, British gangster filmmaker of the last, let's say, even say 30 years. You know, no one else has really kind yeah. of taken that place from uh, Matthew Vaughn kind of did with Layer Cake and he was the producer of the Guy Ritchie films. And then he kind of went off into his own world of of fantasy and violence and comic books. But you're 100 percent right. We don't really see these gangsters in these British films living the high life, right? And then the ones that maybe are, are exploiting the riches that the working class gangsters are bringing in and end up being like the main villain of the film and and taken down. Like there is something to be said about how there is a watermark that the British gangsters try to keep because in a way, it's almost like a socialist thing. No one should have too much and no one should have too little, you know? So yeah. protecting neighborhoods from other crime families, you know, paying protection money and stuff like that. That's a very common theme in these films and in these British gangster ones. But also, it's kind of like our mob films, like The Godfather and stuff like that. These gangsters are also providing, let's say, services of vice to a very conservative culture whether it's you know skin flicks or magazines or drugs or gambling gambling seems to be the biggest one 
you know, yeah. it's really kind of giving the people what they want and all the violence that happens with these British gangsters is usually between them. They're not out there just roughing up everyday citizens because it's the everyday citizens that are essentially paying their bills. Yeah, and and that's why I say I think there is also, there is also that element of romanticism in the films because I'm sure, yeah, they they weren't all, all peaches and key, you know, with 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 um or, or just sort of being rough with uh, other gangsters or, or, or criminals of their sort. But but also, and sorry, to answer your question, yeah, I think we do when it comes to the film versions of them like you said because of the gun power the lack of guns i think there is that that element i think that's another thing that really stands our films out against say yours because yeah it's it's often i think when you see uh guns especially in like the older films here it it it's more impactful it it, it becomes more obvious because it's not a usual sight or, or scene and, and so you kind right. of look at it and you think like in one of the films they, that, that you're going to talk about have got an amazing gun in that. So. Yeah, they do. <laughs> yeah. Well, and here's the thing, too. This is this is my takeaway from it, because I've, I've seen a lot of British gangster films with the lack of firearms, because in American films, everyone's got a gun. Everyone's got a gun. Everyone's got a gun. It comes to the point where the gun is no longer intimidating because everyone's got one, you know, and it's really yeah. easy to end violence with a gun. Even if there's like 20 people with guns, three people might survive. Where in films like the ones we're watching today, the importance of the firearm is the fact that because they are so rare and they are so powerful in their expression, the fact that there's so few and the gangsters that do have them make them instantly more intimidating, what it does is it makes all the other gangsters in the films or in this world have to compensate with attitude and with just good old-fashioned masculinity. You know, when they're going to rough up someone who's not paying protection money, if they're going to go bust up a store, if they're going to go take mm. on another gang, it's like fist to fist and with attitude. And so that's where I think the charm of the British gangster really speaks to me because the attitude, the impression, yeah. and the overall presentation of power is more appealing than some guy that can just pull out a gun and shoot a bunch of people. And that's what I think really separates the British gangster film from the American gangster film. And when we picked these two films to represent the gangster films of the 70s, you picked one and I picked one. And I think our goal was to kind of get away from what the standard gangster film looks like. Because most people will think that it's about a crime boss with a bunch of lackeys, and they're trying to make a score or they're trying to pull off one big robbery like the Italian job. These ones are different. These ones represent more like inner struggles of the British gangster, even, dare I say, the fragile masculinity of the main gangsters in these films. And I think that's why we picked these today. So let's go ahead and start with yours, my friend. What is the film that you brought to represent the gangster films of the 70s? I chose a film. I'm going to be honest as well. I say I hadn't seen it before. We, you know, we 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 looked at this. It's not a really a well-known film over here, anyway. But it's performance with James Fox and Mick Jagger. Warner Brothers presents performance with Mick Jagger and Mick Jagger, James Fox and James Fox. Morning, mate. This is a film about madness. 
No soap on the gentleman's collar. Madness and sanity. The old man was called in the language of Persia. There's nothing wrong with me. I'm normal. <laughs> so had you seen this? Did you? Was it one you said you saw a while ago? Oh, yeah. I saw this film very, very early in my film watching career. Probably like I'd say 16 or 17 when I was old enough to start renting from Blockbuster or grabbing these things from the library. And the reason why I got into it is because I was fascinated with the filmmakers, Donald Camel and Nicholas Roeg. They're real visual experimental filmmakers that really kind of made their way in the 60s and 70s. I remember seeing a film by Nicholas Rogue called Walkabout. I'm not sure if you've seen that one. Oh, yes. Yeah, yeah. Uh, about it's Jenny Agutter and a little boy, and they were lost in the Australian outback and kind of saved by an Aborigine guy who is on his walkabout, kind of like his vision quest, where he has to go out and discover himself before he can return to his tribe. But in meeting these two kids, it kind of takes him away from his walkabout as they're kind of, you know, learning to survive and trying to find people to save these kids. And in that process, we do get a lot of fascinating imagery and a lot of interesting editing and inserts that kind of put you on a psychedelic trip represented by, let's say, the exposure of the sun and the dehydration and the fact that they're just out there in the wilderness. I really became fascinated with that kind of filmmaking. So I started going backwards into that filmography and I found this film. And it's a it's a bonkers film, man. And yeah. I'd say for like an introductory gangster movie for a person who doesn't know what it is, it can be very unsettling and off putting. But yeah. it's something that you want to revisit so you can understand it. And yeah, I've seen this film many times. And that's why I love that you brought this, because it does it kind of pulls like a dusk till dawn kind of thing where it starts off as one type of film and then just shoots you off into a very different world where we have James Fox as a gangster named Chaz, who is kind of like an up-and-comer, but at the same time can't seem to gain the appreciation and satisfaction from his boss. He has a violent temper. He makes some mistakes and has to go on the run, and he ends up hiding out in the basement, I guess you would say in the Bohemian District of London, of this of this building owned by a former rock star named Turner played by Mick Jagger, who's essentially playing himself. Yeah. What did you think about this movie, man? I thought, yeah, couldn't have said it better than how you did. So I was not prepared for where the film took me. Um, so it starts off as a proper gritty crime film. Um, you, you're introduced to, to James Fox's character. And as you say, he, you know, it starts off with quite a graphic sex scene well, I would say graphic at the time, and there's um, a little bit of roughness to that scene as well. So you're setting, it's setting the tone that he is a no nonsense. He wants to be that that crime that crime kingpin almost, it, or, or he will do whatever it takes to, to, like you said, try to appeal to to his his boss or his manager. Um, yeah, then it goes into from there when he's then he's on the run and he finds out about this this basement flat it then turns almost into like an an art house psychedelic trippy uh, hour of a of a film where you, it's all about self exploration now i watched it twice 
And it was on the second viewing that I, well, I, whether you look into things a lot more when you're watching it a second time, but the nuances where, as we said, there's a bit of self-discovery. So you, as, as you said, Mick Jagger, who I thought was great in this actually, but he was ultimately just playing himself, um, mm. was a, uh, a musician who'd lost his demon and so was almost a recluse, didn't leave his house and was just spent his days, you know, reflecting inwardly on himself. Then you've got this criminal coming and they're kind of learning from um, from each other what their place is. When I went back and watched it, um, even right at the start when you're first meeting uh, James Fox, Chaz and his manager, is it Harry Flowers, I think, yeah. there's a couple of lines that stood out and there's a scene where, yeah, Harry says to him, who do you think you are, the Lone Ranger? And Chaz responds, <laughs> I know who I am, Harry. And then they call him a cog in the business and he says, I know what I am which when you then see the rest of the film puts that into stark contrast because I don't think he did know who he is, what he wanted and where he fits. Well, and I think what really grabs me about this film, especially that first, let's say, 20 minutes, is we're really getting to be introduced to the Chaz character is the representation that, you know, this is a very hard man, a very masculine man. He's hard sexually. He's hard with his violence. He's hard with his words. And he's hard with his attitude, which is why, you know, Harry Flowers and company, they like having him as a part of the team because he's a hard man. But there's also that idea where this is a guy at the end of the day we might not be able to control. And the whole idea of how the system works is it's control. You need to be a cog because if you're not a cog, you're a problem. So in Chaz's mind, there is nothing more masculine than what he represents and what really kind of changes the story is as he is introduced to this bohemian lifestyle by Turner and Anita Pallenberg as Ferber. And in real life, Anita Pallenberg, let's talk about that really fast. Yeah. Anita Pallenberg was with Keith Richards at this time. And there was a real fragility to their relationship because Keith Richards essentially stole her from his other bandmate, Brian Jones. And now she's doing supposedly unsimulated sex scenes with Mick Jagger in this film. So that caused a rift between Jagger and Richards during this production where Keith Richards wouldn't even play on the track that the Stones recorded for the film. They brought Rye Cooter in instead to play the slide guitar. So that, I think, adds to the weird tension and sexual animosity in this film. Yeah. And that really represents itself in Turner, but I think it plays well on the part of the directors, Donald Camel and Nicholas Rogue, of realizing that Chaz isn't as strong of a man as he thought he was, because even though he's this harsh dude, he's still very conservative in his thinking. And he's like, oh, these bohemian hippies with their free love and their sexual exploration and their drugs and their trippiness, you know, he looks at them as freaks. But once he gets dosed by Anita Pallenberg and starts exploring this psychedelic world and understanding that Turner's femininity and his confidence in that and his flexibility in his, uh, his sexual identity makes him really a stronger man and a stronger personality than Chaz ever will be. You know, and there's a lot of play in the dialogue when he talks about, you know, oh, I'm a goer. He's like, oh, are you a goer or are you a performer? I think you're yeah, a juggler. Yeah. Like yes. all the metaphors that he uses when they're talking about 
the freedom of sexual expression and really not attaching yourself to a personality. That's where the real strength is. So they're, they're, they're teaching the audience that through this dialogue. They're teaching Chaz this through the experimentation of sex and drugs that he's going through and this polyamorous lifestyle that Turner leads with these two women. Chaz realizes that he's never going to be as free or as strong as these weirdos. And that is, I think, one of the points that's missed by a lot of people in this film. And in the meantime, Turner, his demon that he lost, in my interpretation of the film, is gained by breaking down these walls of masculinity that Chaz has projected so fiercely. And that kind of brings his demon back, which, in my opinion, is why the end of the film is the way it is. But we can get to that in a minute. Yeah. Yeah, and, and that's why I honestly do think this film is one that needs a couple of, or, or, or at least a repeat viewing, because what initially, as you say, seems like some throwaway lines, when you, I think you do need to watch a film just to kind of get over the the, the shock of the, the two types of films that have been melded together, but also the ending because it goes one way and then the ending is quite a dark and, and serious tone. It comes crashing down again, doesn't it? Um, Absolutely. So there, I, I think that you, you, you can do it a disservice by thinking, yeah, there's just a lot of um, flowery. And I, I mean that in the term of psychedelic kind of imagery and poetry being read and recited. When you go back to it, I don't think, I, I think it'd be a crime to say a lot of that is wasted dialogue when it's not, when you, you you see it on that second viewing, um, and yeah, the, the the whole thing with the 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 other thing that kind of shocked me was I was trying to look at it with eyes of somebody in in 1970 when it came out. The yeah, the the nudity, the sex, the violence, and the drug. I mean, the, the open drug taking reference to it, it must have been quite a shocking um, visual sight as well. Well, both Donald Campbell and Nicholas Roeg are very well-known for making their films uncomfortable. And by uncomfortable, I mean they don't follow the traditional narrative that most films do. Like, they put a lot of inserts, and in this film, it does a lot of interesting things where it will show you scenes from the future spliced into scenes that are present. So you have a very unreliable time frame and you have a very unreliable narrative where you don't exactly know what you're looking at and that's 100% intentional you know where you'll have scenes where Chaz is maybe seeing his future or Turner has seen his past and they're just putting all these inserts randomly even with the gangsters like you see things happen to Harry Flowers that maybe not have happened yet but you see them like you see all these inserts that don't make a lot of sense the whole reason for that is to cause a sense of distrust and uncomfortableness in the film, which is supposed to, in my opinion, allow your mind to not get stuck in what a traditional narrative should be and allows you to be more open to see all the little subliminal hints and, let's say, the storytelling through this dialogue of lines that don't make sense to you. They're not yeah. throwaway lines. It's like, yeah. okay... If, if we can break your resolve and break your mind of what a traditional film should look like, let's see how well you pick up on all these little subliminal hints that we're sending you and still tell a convincing story, but we want you to be immersed in this. It's a, it's a visceral experience now. It's not just a movie. Yeah, and, and that's exactly it. There are a lot of subtle things in there 
So the reason why he's gone hide into hiding, just to explain that bit, is the his his crime boss family. Um, as you said, they run Protection Racket, and there is a shop where it's run by a, an old friend or, or colleague of, of Chaz. Now, it turned out they were in the same boxing stable, and it's alluded that there's something that, you know, he's too close to him, but you never kind of really see that. Then, because he's humiliated him, uh, Chaz has, you know, ultimately humiliated his friend, he's he's talked down to by Harry. And then there's quite an uncomfortable scene as well in in Chaz's flat where his friend comes in to wreck the place and they get him on the bedtime up and start whipping me whipping him and there's like you said there's an there's an alluding to something more between them potentially or something about Chaz that then never really is overtly explained isn't there about him potentially maybe having had relationship uh with with, with one of them yeah I agree um, with that 100 percent yeah and 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 like I said as it goes through there's a, a lot of this so as you you know as we say he then ends up with Jagger, who you're looking at it, it's like macho, um, alpha male kind of character against this Mick Jagger type. So you think there's only going to be one kind of victor there or someone who's going to take over. But it's it's the opposite. Jagger gets into him, okay, with the help of many mushrooms. Um, right. <laughs> but there's, there's a, this a whole theme, theme of identity crisis, which I find fascinating. And there is, the, again, there's another little bit where he's trying to, he's waiting for a friend of his an associate Chaz to get him a passport so he can leave the country. And he says, I just need a photo to look slightly different. And they've got him in a fake moustache and a hat. And he's saying, I never wear hats. I never wear hats. By the end of the film, he's in a whole different kind of setup to he's ever been in. So it's that, it's that whole thing about, he's almost fighting to say that he, he never wanted, he's never liked wearing hats to then wearing female clothing and the, the state his, his, colleagues find him in at the end of the film right in the middle of the movie right before we jump into the third act there is that just amazing psychedelic trip scene where we see chaz's identity break down and in his mind he is actually changing places with turner so now chaz is represented as this more effeminate kind of androgynous performer type character but then we see Mick Jagger in a representation of what Turner would be if he was masculine. His hair is slicked back. He's wearing a tight suit. And he is now kind of living this experience of what he would do to Harry Flowers and company if he was this Turner character. If he had Turner's confidence, but if he was in, in his own mind. Yeah. And it is this really interesting musical number the song is called A Memo from Turner. Mick Jagger sings it. And like I said, Keith Richards was supposed to play the part. Ry Cooter did it instead. And I think this is a fascinating moment because what it does is it brings in this musical number, almost like a precursor to a music video, right? In the middle of the film where Turner's character, essentially, which is Chaz, is emasculating all the other gangsters and just really kind of roughing them up making them sexually vulnerable while he's singing this song. It's such an interesting character and story break, but I also feel it's a good break from the film. I like that. Turn it out. I see you down in San Antonio on a hot and dusty night. You were eating eggs and sammies when the black man there drew his knife. 
Oh, you drown that Jew in Rampton if he washed his sleeveless shirt. You know, that Spanish-speaking gentleman, the one that we all call Kurt. It was Mag Cyril. Come now, gentlemen, I know that some mistake. How forgetful I'm becoming now you fix your business. It's like, okay, well, we're going to show you some Rolling Stone stuff now. We're going to give you a musical number to kind of clean your palate for what is coming next. And I thought that was absolutely brilliant yeah and it sounds anyone listening to it it sounds like how can that possibly be a good fit but it it just you know it it doesn't jolt you it just feels so natural at the point it comes in and it, it helps it's also it's a great track yeah it's a and, great track yeah and, and jagger in that scene as well actually looks quite you know because he's come across as this bohemian type but in that way he's got the slip back hair and he's sitting behind the desk and he does look the part he you looks know, the part. yeah yeah um, but they're also in the earlier part of the film, there's also some playing with imagery and how the camera work was done, which I, again, I found really interesting for what initially I went down sitting, expecting a gritty British crime flick. How, how are they play with something like there's early on in the scene, there's a, they're, 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 or in the film, they're playing with some like electric or electronic white noise in the background. Mm-hmm. There's a scene where Harry's sitting at his desk and the camera's like doing that pan back thing. Um, and like you said, you're seeing it all the time in films now. But yeah, kind of to put it in that kind of film back then, I just think must have been quite an inspired or brave. I don't know which one uh, choice. Well, and let's talk about like the influential watermark the thing is set for filmmakers of the future. Like you, like I said, you can go back and you can watch some films, even music videos. Uh, one of the things that I caught right off the bat is in True Romance, Tony Scott does a scene with Gary Oldman where he has the lamp and he swings it towards Christian Slater's uh, character. Yeah. Yeah. And the rest of that scene is kind of lit by this swinging lamp as it's shooting its, its light across the room and across the characters. Well, Turner does that in that musical number as he swings the lamp towards yes. the camera yeah. And then it just lights up the faces of the other characters in the room. Like, oh, I forgot about that. Tony Scott must have seen that and he loved it. Um, I'm a huge fan of the Jonathan Glazer Radiohead music videos of the 90s. And there's a lot of visual cues and influences that I've seen in this film that were later used in, in those music videos of the 90s. It's just a, I think that this was like an underground art house favorite for so long that People who had creative minds loved it, but your average audience member couldn't appreciate it for what it was until they started seeing more experimental films of the 70s like this. You know, let's say Andy Warhol films. Let's say as soon as we got into like the 80s, David Lynch films or Cronenberg films. Once we started getting an appetite for avant-garde cinema, going back and discovering something like this made it a lot more palatable than people who saw it when it first came out in 1970. And it was supposed to come out in 68. It sat on the shelf for two years because the studios didn't know what to do with it. When they first financed this movie, they were pitched that this was going to be the Rolling Stones version of A Hard Day's Night. They thought they were getting some kind of like musical comedy or, or musical expression film. And they should have known better because we've all heard the stories of uh, the Rolling Stones really going deep with their psychedelic stuff while the Beatles were still kind of playing to the pop scene, you know, and we've even heard it in their, in their albums. So when they f- got this final product and what it was, 
because it started off as a comedy, believe it or not, with Marlon Brando as the lead. It turned very, very dark, very, very deep, very, very fast. And by the time the studio got it, they didn't know what to do with it. So they spent two years editing it, reworking it, and finally released it going, well, I guess we have a movie. Let's put it out there and see what it does. And it did nothing. People hated it. Yeah, I, yeah, and I saw that comment. So it was originally going to be about an American gangster hiding in London, and like I said, it was going to be more of a, an upbeat comedy, which I'm glad it wasn't because there there are so many of those. Um, I'm just thinking, even now, you can imagine how it's marketed. It's going to be marketed one of two ways. It's either going to be marketed at those crime thriller uh, fans who are then going to be disappointed or potentially disappointed when it turns into this art house psychedelic trip. Or it's going to be marketed, as you said, as like uh, the, the 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 Rolling Stones' Hard Day's Night, and people probably may have been had their stomachs turned by the violence at the start and 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 the ending. It's I think now it's great to watch, but again, I'll reiterate: I think it must have been a difficult. Um, it straddled two worlds, and I think at that time, I'm wondering if the the cinema fans in this country, uh, being England, were ready for that. Is there any cultural relevance that you were aware of when, about this film throughout like the 80s and 90s when you were really kind of discovering your tastes in music, when you were really kind of talking with people about video and, and film? Because for me, I've always just known this as like an underground film that a lot of people who I respect appreciate. That's its cultural relevance to me. And the fact that it stars Mick Jagger like in his first real film role uh, he did do Ned Kelly and Ned Kelly came out first, but this was made before Ned Kelly. That to me was like the only real significance of it, it was like, oh, well, it's that Mick Jagger movie where he's a gangster, you know, even though that's not the case. That's what a lot of people thought it was. What is this film's place in, in, in England? I, like, like I said, I'm going to be honest. I've never in my circle of, of friends and colleagues and, you know, workplaces I've been in. It's never, it's never been a thing. I this is it's been really well hidden. So, like, like, like I said, when you approached me for this subject, I wanted to try and get away from some of the obvious ones. I saw right. this and I thought, do you know what? Even though it's 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 got Jagger in, and I've you know over recent years I've become much more appreciative of 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 the Stones music. Um, I'd not heard of it, and then when I saw that it's in, oh, I can't remember. It's it's in one of the like the the top 100 films you must see before you die and i'm thinking how is it that it's it's that well revered but yet most people here won't really know it which mm -hmm. is what what drove me to watch it and now when when you know when i see it as you said i can see some of the 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 legacy it's had on media since then um again with some of some of the the, the, the camera styles and and even the music videos, like you said, you know, when you said Radiohead, you know, kind of that light bulb went out, went on over my head because it's like, yeah, you can absolutely see where that's coming from. Um, I just, it's, it's a crying shame that I just don't think many people here know about it. A hundred percent. The no alarms and no surprises video, especially when it comes to like the imagery and the lighting really is reminiscent of a lot of the imagery that you see in this film. So uh, yeah, I want to go back and now watch a lot of those Jonathan Glazer Radiohead videos because it really sparked that light bulb in my head. I was like, oh, yeah, oh, yeah, oh, yeah. I totally see that. So, so what about the ending for you? Because, yeah, if you look on online, there's, there's a lot of debate about the ending. Okay, so spoilers. Chaz is discovered to be at this place. Turns out that he was betrayed by his best friend and he told him where they could find him. 
And I think at this point, this is so how I look at it. Chaz is now made this transformation essentially into this Turner type character where now he is going to be this more androgynous type of person, this person that has his eyes open to the world of sexuality and psychedelic trips and things like that. But at the same time, the things that were keeping him from becoming the next Harry Flowers, he is now able to say, all right, well then, if I can't be Harry, I'm going to be Turner, and there can only be one Turner. And so the fact that he executes Turner, the fact that he kills him and leaves him in a closet before he goes to face what could potentially be his demise, because you know that's what we're getting at with this film, is that Harry Flowers and the crew are going to take out Chaz. It's his mission to be the one performer. There cannot be two performers. So by taking Turner's life and essence, he is now, in my opinion, the final manifestation of what his chrysalis was going to be he is now in his mind the one the only and the ultimate performer human goer all the things that he already was all the things that he realized he could be and the fact that he looks at turner as weak for giving up for not pursuing his career further because he lost his demon he looks at that as a sign of weakness and by taking turner's strength and eliminating his life therefore he's eliminated his weakness now he is like the penultimate performer. That's how I take it. Yeah, that, no, that's, that's, that's a really interesting view because initially when I first saw it, I thought it was a, he was just so angry at what he or what they, so as in... Um, Made him. You know, yeah, what they, what they turned, yeah, they delayed him and they turned him into a weaker version of himself. Almost maybe, well, when I say weaker, maybe what he wanted to be, but what circumstances up till this point haven't allowed him to be. And so it was a case of yeah, killing uh, killing Turner, sort of be driven off. But then when yeah, when you see the car that drives off is Jagger or Jagger's face, so it's obviously it's not him. I think what you said ab- yeah. absolutely makes sense that it's it's about yeah, he's he he's he's merged those two. He is like you said, he is the victor. He is he. It's almost like he's ascended into what he should be. But yeah, his mm-hmm. fate is still left in in the balance. So it's almost like it's a, it's it's a, it's a it's a shame or it's a waste of both their lives that both those artists or performers are no no longer going to be there. Um, so yeah, and just on the execution of Jagger uh, or Turner, again, just that scene because it's not overly graphic, but you see as the bullet supposedly enters the head, there's all imagery and flashes of of imagery then as well. So it, even that scene isn't just the standard. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm offing him. It turns into a bit of a, a um, an art house vibe into that as well, almost like the final bit of that. You are getting the point of view of a bullet. Yeah going through a person's psyche and seeing their memories and all the flashes of life as it takes their life away. It's actually a very beautiful moment, despite how grotesque it really is in its execution. I thought it was actually a really beautiful moment in film. I'm just wired that way. Yeah. And and the other thing about that, you know, because we'll, we'll compare it to the other one. You don't all, all well, the majority of the violence and the aggression in this film comes from, Chaz so mm-hmm. his his firm they come across as gentlemen don't they and they actually say when they're bringing him into the protection racket no he's joining our almost like our conglomerate of businesses we're allowing him to join our collection of businesses and Correct. so it's just constant yeah the, the 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 aggression comes from um from from Chaz so it is that 
like I said, that constant internal battle of 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 that man's mind throughout the whole film. And it almost like yeah, like you said, as it that final scene as he's driving away, he's almost just looking out the window. It's almost quite forlorn, isn't it? it, it mm-hmm. It's almost like a, 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 a sad look. Now some would say obviously because he's he's going off to his uh, his potential doom. But I, I think, like I said, is that it's almost like a a realization of the wasted potential and what could have been. A hundred percent. I love this movie. Everyone should go seek it out. Um, it's really easy to see here in the States. Uh, I'm not sure if you had to rent it, but in the States, it's, it's free on several different platforms. And it's a it's an excellent introduction into like the psychedelic and experimental films of the 70s, especially from Donald Camel and Nicholas Rogue, who are experts of the craft. All right, so I brought something a little bit different, a little bit more <laughs> straightforward. But why I brought it is because it explores, I'm going to say, the inner workings of a sociopathic, violent gangster that no longer has a gang. It is a very inner reflective work of gangster movie. And that is 1972's Sitting Target. You are looking at an animal. I've got to get out of here, Birdie. And the toughest maximum security prison can't cage his lust for vengeance. The Prison Break. The Mauser Special. The Target. With this gun, there are no more hard contracts for Harry Lomart. Every hit is a sitting target. Sitting target. It stars Oliver Reed, Ian McShane, who is young and sexy in this movie. And Jill St. John, who most people would probably know as the Bond girl from Diamonds Are Forever. And, man, I love this movie so much. You had a hard time seeing the last few minutes of it, yeah. but you you got it through different clips on YouTube. What was your overall opinion of how this film played? Because you'd never even heard of this film, right? No, again, enough one. And just to add, also, it's got Edward Woodward, who only ever seems to be a policeman, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I re- I love this. I love this. It it's a more traditional crime film compared to performance, which again I think is great as a if you and I, anyone listening, I would recommend to watch these two films together again because oh, yeah. You, you, yeah, oh, yeah, you do get that complete contrast. Yeah, I thought one it was a great um, it was a great crime film. Uh, it was a great thriller. The there are a number of scenes in it which are really quite tense. You know, even watching it now uh, through use of the, the, the music and the, the acting, you know, you've got some real great actors there in their prime and you forget how sort of good looking um, Oliver Reed was in his in his pomp, isn't it? He's starting at the start. He's doing the press ups, isn't he? Uh, and the exercising. Oliver Reed, and I told you this in via text, is like a beast of a man. Like I've always yeah. thought that Oliver Reed was was more than human in pretty much any film. Like if there was at the time, let's say the 60s and 70s, like the definition of masculinity, we're not talking about bodybuilders like Arnold. We're not talking about, you know, good looking, gorgeous men like Richard Gere and Warren Beatty. Oliver Reed for like 30, 40 years of his career just represented like to me, the man, a man, a bear of a man. And he did it in films where he was very, let's say, physically aggressive. And then he also did it in films where he was very, very calm. But the face, just the stature, the presence, 
And this film is definitely one of those representations of like, okay, it opens up with him doing push-ups, pull-ups, all sorts of cardio work and, and muscle work and resistance training in a prison cell using like the plumbing pipes, using the frame yeah. of his bed. Um, it almost kind of reminds me of uh, in Sarah Connor's uh, Terminator 2 introduction where she's got yes, a little, yeah. let's say, home gym in her prison cell and she's just working out all day. That's what this guy is doing. It's that perfect example of if he's like a shark, if he stops swimming, he will die. And that's kind of portrayed in many different ways throughout this film. So the story of the film is that Oliver Reed plays Harry Lomart, another Harry. You Brits and your Harrys, I tell you. <laughs> he is a career criminal who you know keeps getting busted either because he's getting double crossed by people or he just takes on risks that are too big. And so what I love about this movie and his character is that he is perfectly resigned to being a career criminal, and he's also perfectly resigned to doing the time. Like, for him, that's life. It's like, exactly. oh, okay, yeah. I'm in prison for 15 years. That's just what I'm going to do when I get out. I'm going to go back and rob another bank. I'm going to do another heist. That's just what my life is. It's high risk. Like, he's perfectly resigned to that. Yeah. But he also has a wife who he's madly in love with. Her name is Pat, played by Jill St. John, who's just gorgeous. Although it's sad that they dubbed her because she's actually an American in real yes, life. Yeah. And they dub her and it's obviously dubbed. It, it, it takes me out of it a little bit, but it's okay. He has this one attachment in life because what we get from him at the very introduction is that he's a sociopath. He has no sympathy, empathy, or real emotion towards anything. He is really just flippant about life. Yeah, I got caught. Now I'm going to do the time. And in his mind, because he is so removed from emotion, he just thinks that his wife should just wait for him. <laughs> he's like, what? It's 15 yeah, years. Not, you can't wait. So yeah, you've waited yes. for me before. Like, it's just the way his mind works. And she tells him, I can't wait another 15 years. And in fact, I've met somebody and I'm pregnant. And all this time where we see just like this perfectly reserved gentlemanly figure of a prisoner, he gives this violent display of smashing his hand through the little window of the little talk box that the prisoners and, and visitors talk through. And he strangles her and he would literally kill her had he not been tackled by multiple guards and essentially saved her from this. And it's a great. Sorry, just two. Sorry, just two things on that scene in particular. One, again, I thought it was really clever how they filmed it with both the reflection, the and reflections, the yeah, being on the same side, hundred um, percent. But do you know what that scene there, where you said where he's he's literally put his fist through the the the, the plastic or glass panel and is is strangling her. We've been so conditioned now. I was expecting that to be an imagination scene that it would snap back and he's imagining that because that's what most films do nowadays. But then when it turns out to be real, <laughs> that's and for me what made me think, yeah, this film is going to be different. A hundred percent. And he has this uh, cellmate who's another career criminal that he knows, played by Ian McShane. His name is Birdie. He brings the charm, right? He is the real charming mm. character. He's a gentlemanly character. And even though... He is a violent criminal. We never see the violent displays of him. And it's a great character dynamic to have. You know, like you have your straight man and your funny man in most movies or comedies. Here you have Harry, who is just the stone wall, right? And then you've got Birdie, who is the more flamboyant and energetic type of character, which I think is funny because in Ian McShane's roles now, I feel he's traded places with Oliver Reed's archetype. 
now he is like the more stoic character in all of his roles that you see. Very little emotion is portrayed unless it's anger. And so what I love about the whole way this film takes off is that Oliver Reed is like content to stay in jail. But now that he knows that his wife has gone out on him, that wants the divorce, is going to have another man's baby, he only has one mission in life, and that's just to kill her. It's, it's, it's amazing, really, isn't it? Because we, even now, that feels quite a shocking storyline. And again, I'm just trying to think how it would have been. You know, we're talking 50-odd, 50 years ago now. Yeah, 50 years ago on the dot. How that must have come across to viewers, and, and especially, the, yeah, the, the, the kind of the censors back home or back here. Birdie, through his connections with some of the British gangsters, arranges to get a prison escape done. There's some guards that are on the take. They're going to help free out this you know, crime boss of England. And in exchange, they're going to set these guys up once they get out. A brilliant prison escape scene. One of the best I've ever seen. Yeah. And what's so great about it is how subtle it is. There's not a lot of big music. There's not a lot of big visual flair to it to make it more dramatic. It is literally like a 10-minute suspenseful escape yeah. scene where everything has to go right for it to work. And so many things go wrong in the process, like a dog attacks them. They're shimming across a rope from one wall to another, and the bricks break. Like all the different things, it's one of those nail-biting moments that it, it really sets you up for what's coming for the rest of the film by getting your heart going. You know, it's been pretty easy, except for like the attempt on Jill St. John's life, you don't really know what you're in for until this prison scene happens. And it was brilliantly shot. Yeah, I agree. I think the the one that stuck out for me really was the them going across the rope, uh, the rope bridge where, and one of them gets stuck halfway through, doesn't it? He's like, I'm not moving. I'm not moving. And that's then when all the, all the trouble start. And, and yeah, like you said, the, um, the, uh, guard dog now i always laugh because i say the trope in most films is that the dog always survive if you ever see a dog in a film that right. survived but you know they take they, they they dispatch a dog quite violently <laughs> as well doesn't he and and again it's just that's a well to me it's, it's not subtle as such but it's a subtle nod to what he will do to get his goal you know it's like I, i'm gonna take everything out Yes, and there's a lot of subtle hints in the film that lead up to the finale, which we're not going to touch quite on yet. But again, on repeat viewings, if you have the opportunity, you do see character dynamics that are introduced that make sense when you're watching them, but make even more sense while you get there. Like, why is it so important that Harry gets out? A, he's his main character, but there's more to it, and we'll get into that. So this is the part that I think is really exciting, too, is that it kind of shows us the world that they live in, let's say this was filmed in 1970 or 71, then it takes place in 72. The idea that once they escape, it turns out they were double-crossed by the guy they helped escape, but they are too smart. They know it's coming, so they kind of play against it. They use it to their advantage. Harry just needs a gun. So he goes to one of you know the old, let's say, weaponry fencers of mm. the criminal underbelly to get this gun a nine millimeter modified Mauser with like a rifle stock and a scope, five magazines of ammo. It is a badass gun, right? And it's got an automatic trigger. It's one of the coolest guns of, of cinema history, in my opinion. And it plays a huge role because it's like a multi-tool for Harry. You know, he's using the scope for just surveillance and different things like that. It, it, It really is like an every man's tool for him. 
But there is an interesting line that Birdie says to him about this gun. He's like, hey, are you sure you want a shooter? Because once you have that, not only are the cops going to be looking for us, but also the guys that are already after us. Because a shooter makes you a vulnerable and a shooter makes you attractive to the law. Like we can escape, we can leave. But if you bring this into it and you start using it, everyone's going to know who we are, where we are, and what we're doing. I couldn't tell you, Bertie, you would have tried to stop me, wouldn't you? Yeah. Yeah, well, all you need is a Yank accent in Chicago. Here we come. Come on, that's never been our style, Harry. Shooters. Well, it's mine now. Yeah, but... A gun. That leaves us in the cold over here. This is England. Now, everybody knows what that means. Look, nobody uses those over here except mugs. Not even coppers, and nobody wants to know about them either. That thing starts popping off. Everybody's out to stop you. Our side as well as the law. Well, you said things was changing, didn't you? But not as much as that. Well, for me, they are. Now, you listen to me. Pat's going to have protection, right? From the mob as well as the law, right? Like, it's a really interesting idea. Like, the first thing that Americans would go for in a film like this would be a gun. And according to the logic of, of the British gangster, the gun's the last thing you want. <laughs> yeah, yeah, draw heat on themselves. Yeah, it's, um, and, and like I said, and that scene is, is quite interesting. This is where, for me, unfortunately, uh, my viewing of the, of the film kind of broke up a little bit. But what I also thought was interesting there, there was, there's a bit where the guy that double-crossed them, he's got, posters of, of of naked women up on the wall as well hasn't he and i think yeah. harry starts shooting those posters which again i think feeds into the psyche of where his mind is at at the moment um in terms of what his his mission is again which is is a is a, again not subtle on screen but i think it's again it's a throwaway thing where you think he's just shooting up a a, a room but if you take it into what he's actually trying to achieve um, I think it just adds that layer on. That's an excellent point because he is so, this is where like I feel this is a romance story too. Okay. He is so in love and also in love with the idea that his wife, Jill St. John, is his and his alone, can't be shared with another man, but he is also hers. So he turns down a prostitute. Like they have a prostitute waiting in That's the van right. yes. that is helping them escape from prison. And then later on, they deal with another prostitute, which is, you know, the uh, essential living companion of one of the gangsters that they've been dealing with for a long time. Birdie's character has no problem hopping into the sack with her because essentially she's like everyone's property mm. in this world. You see a moment as Oliver Reed is getting into the bathtub to take a bath and she is like, oh, these are salts and oils and they make your bath more pleasant, you know, pleasant, pleasurable. There's a moment where he removes her robe and he stares at her naked body. And it's a brilliant performance by him because he never breaks his facial expression. All of the acting is done through his eyes where you can see a moment of lust for her, but then you see a moment of disgust of himself for admiring her naked body. He puts clothes back on her and then goes and takes his bath and then just continues to have like a normal conversation. She's so used to just being used and abused in this world of gangsters that all of a sudden she feels comfortable with this guy who basically has the most uh, ominous presence and ominous goal for this movie. He is like the literal bad guy, yet he treats her better than any of the other gangsters have probably ever treated her. 
So there is something to say about his character, about his respect. I'm not going to say respect for women as much as his loyalty to his woman, even though he wants yeah. to kill her. <laughs> and it is a deft little touches like that in, that can make a film, you know, make or break a film in the sense that, like I said, he is out to get his one, his his woman. And as you said, um, Birdie is, is showing no, um, what's the word, second thought to, to hopping in here and there. But yet he... That's not. He's not interested in that. He, he he doesn't want to deviate from his one goal, and that goal is 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 his his the love of his life. So even though he is a criminal, he's serving however many years in prison. His his buddies are, are just doing what what the hell they want. That's not part of his goal. So he's not going to lower himself down to that. And and normally you see the main hero slash villain slash um, antagonist of a film doesn't show any moral regard or moral fiber in that regard um but we saw it subverted in this film and it also kind of goes to show that oliver reed's character's performance as harry it is a character that is driven by nothing but sheer passion there are no let's say mind games going on he's not calculating anything everything he's doing is 100 percent just by the book and reactionary because his mission is one of passion where Ian McShane is more of the, let's say, uh, constructive thinker. He's the one who is doing a lot more of the, okay, well, the police are going to think we're doing this, so we're going to do this. We're going to stay on this train, but we can't stay on it too long. Like, he's doing all the calculations, and Harry really thinks that those calculations are for his benefit, but we kind of learn later on that there might not be as much uh, dedication to Harry's cause as we think from Bertie. And we kind of get that right from the bat. Like, it's a beautiful performance by McShane, but at the same time, McShane does enough acting with his face and his gestures and his mannerisms. You like him because he is charming. You like him because he is uh, flamboyant and energetic. I'm almost going to say he kind of brings like a kind of Jack Sparrow uh, electricity to his performance. There's a flamboyancy that you like. You want to see more of him. And if you are a, a good film watcher, if you are a good uh, analyst of storytelling, you also know that that character is not one to be let go lightly. You can't really trust him with everything because it kind of makes zero sense why he would be sticking with Harry throughout this whole mission. If he was, because re- he has nothing to gain out of it. You know, there is money that was left over from the heist that Harry got busted for. But Harry's adamant saying, like, well, we're not dipping into that. That's for Pat. So when you start adding up all of the different little things together, it starts to make sense that Ian McShane has more going on in his character's role than you, you would be led to believe just off of his dedication to Harry's cause. Yeah, exactly. And, and like I said, especially with the, the whole pointing out about the gun, um, it feels like, yeah, that he... he Ian McShane is the cool, calm brains of the operation and, and Ollie Reed is going to be the loose cannon. So like I said, once they've escaped, what's keeping him with him? Right. And I definitely don't want to spoil the ending of this movie because I yeah. want people yeah. to go see it and see the movie. But the way that we've set it up, I think, is a perfect example of, okay, this plays like a straightforward gangster film at first. And then it becomes a very deep and intimate character study of Harry, of Oliver Reed's character. And then it allows like the more fun characters around him to play, especially McShane's character. 
Eddie Woodward's character is like the cop who's like supposed to be protecting Jill St. John's character because she's the one that tells the police that Harry's out to get me. He's mm-hmm. escaped from jail. Mm-hmm. He's coming for me. I know he's coming for me. He hasn't escaped. He's not going to hide in America. He is coming for me. I know him. His character, even though it's not as big as I feel it should be, it does exactly what it's supposed to do. It's supposed to take you into the direction that Jill St. John wants to take you, that the police are there to protect her. There is another reason why the police are getting involved 100%, and that is, again, just really, really good storytelling. What I'm impressed about, though, about this film, man, is how this film can keep you so invested and so excited with very few actual characters. These days, and especially in the days of, uh, let's say, Long Good Friday of gangster films, they bombard you with characters. They bombard you. Guy Ritchie, especially. Guy Ritchie yeah. is known for like, I'm going to throw 20 characters at you that all have their own unique personalities and are very flamboyant and exciting and people are going to quote them. But this film really has like five speaking characters throughout the whole thing. Yeah, and, and for me, I think what it is, and, and like you said, absolutely, I think it's a film people should experience for themselves, the ending. But I think there's, you know, there are a number of really good scenes, really tense scenes. So, I, I, you know, I will say there's a good fight scene with Ed, Edward Wood um, and Ollie Reed. There's a very, I think, cleverly done police chase scene. Um, very really, cool. Yeah. And the other thing, the only thing I was going to say to point out from my perspective is what kind of I love about this film. And and again, it may not mean anything to, to you or, or anyone that's not in this country, but it's great seeing a film based in what I would say is like a normal, a lot of it was in normal estates in this country. Um, You know, growing up and you see all the American films, even if they were in what may have been working class areas in America, because they were American, they looked big and glamorous to us over here. Um, Performance is based in Notting Hill, I think, which is Kensington, which is a nice part of London. So to see this almost a complete opposite where it's showing almost normal estates of the time just mm-hmm. added that little bit more for me as a, as a viewer for that reality level you're 100 right i never really thought of that like you are in let's say the working class areas of the city where people are living in like these large flats yeah. or tenement yeah. buildings you know you're not seeing like you said the the estates or the duplexes or the brownstone central london you're not seeing all the big yeah central yeah. london <laughs> Yeah, you're you're seeing the people that are like taking the metro every day. You're seeing the people that are living in these little small flats, and it, again, it, it kind of adds to the importance of what Oliver Reed's mission is. It's not about money. It was never about money. Yeah. If anything, the money that he was stealing, the money that he was willing to risk to go to jail for, was simply so that his wife wouldn't leave him. Yes, yeah. He wanted her to feel comfortable in her own financial tastes and her own financial expectations so she wouldn't leave him. It wasn't because he was looking for a better life or wanted to spend a bunch of money. Everything he was doing was literally to keep her with him. And that's why I think that this is one of the most romantic, (laughs) in a weird way, gangster films ever made because all the stakes, which are so high, are literally for love, even though that love for him is I'm going to kill this woman so she can't be with anyone else. Yeah, no, it is, it is, it's, it's, it's a really interesting yeah, storyline. So, so like I said, I'd, I'd, yeah, if you haven't seen it, definitely go see it. Cause it's a great, like I said, I think a lot of people 
here and and again sweeping generalization but i would also say young generations i think they're put off by films pre-1990 pre-2000 and i think that's why a lot of these films are are slowly going out of memory because they're not shown on tv this one i found a lot harder to see than performance um to, to, to rent and it's yeah. a shame because it is a British, which is sad because it's so easy. It's so easy to see here yeah. in the states, but it's a British yeah. film and you can't yeah. watch it. And, and I just think it's because, yeah, the, yeah, people are just kind of not having time. I think for anything that's seen as, you know, when you've got '90s as seen as retro, I think that's the problem. <laughs> you know, so I would say the closest thing to the American version that we have of this is. Uh, Richard Stark wrote these novels back in the 60s, the Parker novels. And Lee Marvin made a film back in the late 60s with John Borman called Point Blank. And that was later remade as Payback with Mel Gibson. I'd say that's kind of like the closest thing that we've got to a story like this about it's just one man, one gangster. And in that, yeah, love has a lot to do with it, but it's also just about the principle of being a gangster, you know? He was owed X amount of money. He was robbed of it. He was double-crossed for it. So, yeah, he could go take revenge on everybody, but really he just wants the money. And all the revenge that happens in that movie is just so he can get to his money. The money and the principal thing is what drives him. This, to me, is like the closest thing I can think of that on the British level, where the principle of the love and the fidelity of his wife is what drives him. That's It's what separates this story from things that we would see later on, like the long good Friday or the craze, you know, it's, it's a very, very different gangster movie. And that's why I wanted to bring it to the, to the show today because of how unique it is in this genre. Yeah. And thank you for giving me this opportunity because I got to see two great films. So yeah, that, that, that I'm waxing lyrical about now. So I will be telling everyone (laughs) to, to watch these that I come across. Yeah. Awesome, man. Thank you so much for doing this with me. And we'll do the 80s next. You know, I don't have a time frame on that, but start looking up your 80s British gangster films and we'll do the same thing. You'll bring one, I'll bring one. I'm excited for that episode. So Casting Views, man, you've been doing a lot of big changes with the show. I got to be a guest on not too long ago. We talked about bad business decisions. I love the direction you're going. So what are some of the things that we've got coming up on on your show that people have to look forward to? Yeah, so kind of at time of recording this, I've got a couple of different episodes coming out in the sense of one is going to be a fun look at some amazing facts. Uh, actually, we have mutual friend Justin from the Movie Wire. I've got an episode coming out on band advertising. There's one that's going to be um, looking at jump the shark moments in in tv shows tv finales is it, it really yeah i've got i'm quite i'm quite excited about some of the ideas that are coming through and especially when you know i'm open for suggestions so like yourself you actually provided the bad um, business decisions and you've, you've given me another three which i've got on the list so no spoilers for those because we'll keep we'll keep those uh quiet but also yeah like you said at the start the, the length of time we'd be going i'm actually coming up also some point i've got to make sure i plan correctly i've got the hundredth episode and yeah my two year well our, our two year coming up as well really isn't it in a, in, a, in a couple of months so i want to look at doing something yeah. special for that yeah well it's been exciting taking this podcasting journey with you and it's always exciting to have you on the show especially to talk about things that are uh, a lot more relevant to your part of the world and uh it's just been a pleasure man knowing you and talking to you and i can't wait to 
watch more British gangster films and talk about them with you. So thank you for that. Yeah, likewise, and, and thanks for having me on. And like I said, I'm a big advocate of the show because like I said, it, it really does throw light on the films as i've just said there with, with the ones here british films that aren't really well known here so i think it's great to, to to throw those lights on those forgotten classics yeah tell people where they can find you and where they can follow you on social media yep so you, you'll be able to hear me on pretty much all the podcast platforms just look for casting views i'm mostly active on twitter so that's at casting views and yeah as i said if you want to be a guest or you want to suggest a, a theme you can drop me an email at castingviewspod at gmail.com. And do us both a favor, hop onto your favorite pod platform, subscribe, rate, review, share. We love it when you do that. There's no greater feeling when we can go and look at our subscription numbers and see that they've gone up. It's one of my favorite things to do in this world. And man, if you and I can start sharing audiences more, that would just be the highlight of my year. That'd be great, yeah. So everyone, you know where to find me. Hop on thecultworthy.com for all my reviews and links, especially links to cult-worthy partners like Dan and Casting Views, which you can find in the Cult-Worthy Partners page. And please listen to my other shows, The Cult-Worthy Classic and The Milf and Me Podcast. We are just loving what we're doing. And Dan, I can't wait to be on your show. And I can't wait for you to come back to this one. Looking forward to it. Absolutely. We've got plans. We've got plans. Thank you so much, everybody. And we will see you next week. I would like, if I may, to take you on a strange journey. It has been a number of years since I began excavating the ruins of Kandar, the group of my colleagues. Well, a, a boy's best friend is his mother. Eric Bedford lives for the movies. Sometimes he kills with him too. Warriors! Come out to play! And probably the most important thing, don't ever feed him after midnight. <laughs>